So, Anita, if people were to remember you by only your words, what would those words be? We create purpose through the challenges that we face. You know, before my husband got sick, I had felt like I had been through the challenge of being an entrepreneur, of not getting investment in my business and have to shut it down because I got pregnant. All these little things that I've experienced with inequality in the workplace, and those gave me the purpose. You can sulk in those moments or you can look for that purpose and see how you can help others. And that's what I did for years in the private sector. And then that's why I wanted to bring it to the public sector is how can I help others with that? And then when my husband got sick, people always ask me, we know this was a hard decision. How do you keep going? How do you keep doing this? Take time with your family. And for me, it was if I don't turn this into something that helps me move forward, but also others, then I don't feel like I'm honoring that that challenge came into my life. There's a reason for everything. And if we don't learn from good or bad, then I don't think we're moving forward. Then I don't think we're moving forward. Then I don't think we're moving forward. Then I don't think we're there has never been a moment quite like now. People often say and feel the world is changing, but sometimes I'm not too sure. Is the world changing? Or are we simply for the first time becoming more aware of ourselves and the world around us? These questions led me to create Social Fabric, a podcast aimed at having conversations with thought leaders and explore the ideas that are shaping our world. You know, T.S. Eliot once said, we shall not cease from exploration and the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. My goal is that this podcast has that effect on you. I'm your host, Ramnik, and thank you for being here. Politics, to me, contrary to what we seem to feel these days, has always had an inspiring place in my heart. To me, being an American was a feeling before anything else. I've always held onto a very deep sense of what could be possible when I think of being an American. I think this reflects back at us in different ways, and I think there is no better example of this reflection than our politics. This episode was my first sit-down with a politician. Her name is Anita Malik, and she is running in 2020 to represent Arizona's District 6 in the U.S. House of Representatives. You know, I often refer to politics as the art of the possible. My conversation with Anita was a fascinating look at what she thinks is possible. Without further delay, I give you Anita Malik. I am, I was the 2018 Democratic nominee for Arizona 6th District running here um, in this district. And I have decided to recommit to that process and run again. And so we are in the, the early stages of building kind of the structure of what you would do for a campaign. You know, 2020 is, seems a bit away, but it's really right here. Yeah. Um, and so we're feeling that that pressure and we're, and we're going. So, um yeah, I mean, that's a little bit about where I'm at at the moment. <laughs> right, yeah. And, and just walking in here, we were kind of joking about 
how there's so much time, but there's no time at all. Yeah. When it comes to it, because right now we're in August of 19 and almost a full year, but there's so much prep work, I imagine. Can you talk around like the type of things that you're thinking about right now in your timeline? The biggest thing I think for us is really developing out the ground strategy. So I'm very big on, I don't run a traditional campaign. I don't Mm. come from a political or campaign background. You know, I come from the tech world, from an operational background and from marketing. And so for me, it's about looking at your demographics. It's about reaching people, hearing their stories, bringing those inputs in, just like you would in a business when you're looking at your customers, right? I mean, it's really about how do you develop that connection, that relationship. So the ground game and building out the strategy is what we're spending most of our prep time these few months on. Um, Some fundraising, but really for me, it, it is that how am I going to reach and connect with people enough to to close the gap that we saw last time you know we we got pretty far but we have to continue that and where are those stories where what are people talking about where are those different communities of people and some of that's going out to different events it's it's interacting with groups that maybe we weren't able to get to last time the benefit of it's so early is that we have more time right. this time and we have the data behind us to actually achieve that. So it's exciting from that standpoint, but you also feel like, okay, do I have to hurry up and wait? Do I have to, you know, who's, who is intrigued at this point in this election, right. which again, you know, the primary itself is now finally under the year mark, which yeah. is nice. Yeah. Um, it's next August, August 4th of 2020. But yeah, I mean, people, the average voters is concerned with their daily life. And so to me, if you run a campaign, that's about getting someone to vote. That's, I don't believe that would work, right? I want to run a campaign that's about connecting with people in their spaces and their places on the issues that they're concerned about. They're affecting them today, not this possibility of what could come from legislation down the road. So like, I mean, you were kind of mentioning just a minute ago, you know, you're background being in tech yes um just for people that might just be coming across your stuff maybe for the first time or very early in the stage Mm -hmm. of discovering who you are what transitioned you into you know or triggered you to act in the in this capacity as in into politics you know what 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 was that what made you go from you know a corporate mindset a maybe an entrepreneurial mindset to politics it was a combination of things, really. Um, I think from one standpoint, it was being in the tech world and watching what was happening with the threats to our democracy for cybersecurity, the threats to our personal information, mm. um, with people having to deal with with their information being stolen and what's happening in the digital world, and understanding and recognizing that in D.C. we didn't have leadership for that. Right. Um, knowledge, A, but then also people that were willing to be proactive and say, this is the kind of standards we need in place. This is the kind of t- stuff we need to do. And you see other countries start to started to take at that time those approaches, right, right. with GDPR and, and us not even moving in that direction. It was very alarming to me. So that, that was one point and one reason coming from the tech world. But I think the biggest um, push for me was just seeing that what was happening to kind of middle-class families, what was happening to the idea of the American dream in my community and also what I felt personally was really what prompted me to, to look into this and make a huge jump. I mean, I think running the tech issues is something that, you know, I would have probably lobbied for or worked on or done something with regardless. But to make that jump to go from 
I'm just going to run for Congress. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> which is, I mean, it's one thing. That, it's one thing to advocate on, right. from the corporate side, right. lobby, etc., all those things. But jumping into okay, I'm, right. I'm just going to completely jump into this side of it. Right. Yeah. You know, I for me that was really an emotionally driven. It was personally driven. It was the idea of you know I lost my father now, gosh, 17, 18 years ago, mm-hmm. and just you get older, you have your own kids, you start to reflect on some of the lessons a little bit more. And his lesson to me was, if you don't have your health, you don't have anything that you don't need to constantly strive for all these goals. If you feel like you're not treating yourself well in that process, or you have time with your family. And so make sure you prioritize, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) make sure you prioritize what really matters. And as I reflected on that and looked at what was happening politically the notion that we've taken away this idea of what I call the work-life balance, Mm, right? Yeah. Which it doesn't seem like a political talking point, but to me it is. It is, is, right? Because people are working two to three jobs. People don't know if there's going to be retirement security with social security. Um, The sandwich generation, which I'm a part of, is feeling that strain on all ends. Mm -hmm. Um, Education, you know, costs have gone up. If you have young kids, there's, you know, daycare in itself is sometimes more than a college education. Right. Um, it's putting, taking women out of the workplace. We're fighting for equal pay. The issues were just mounting and I could feel that pressure in my own life. Mm -hmm. And so it frustrated me that I lived in a district with a representative that wasn't accessible, that wasn't really showcasing the values that I support in Washington and voting in the way that I think the most of the district would want um, for our families, not about party, but about those family core issues. Right. So that really got me to say, you know what, I'm going to leave my job as a COO. I'm going to do this because the ideas of those, those, that dream, I just think we're being lost and still are. Right. And, and that's what keeps me in it. Well, it's interesting because, you know, Arizona has, at least as long as I've lived here, um, and you, you know this as well, like it's always been considered a pretty deep red state. Mm-hmm. I mean, just like the, in the, in the notion of mm-hmm. it. Right. But in the last, even in the last election, you know, things look a lot more purple. Things look a lot different than just straight red. Right. I mean, I mean, that's a very general way of right. talking about it, but like, what did you see in your first campaign? Like, did you have any insights or nuances that you didn't expect? Like, what did you see talking to people on the ground in terms of their views on what's going on? Mm-hmm. Um, were people are people even aware right now of the type of changes that are coming, or is it more they feel like they know the answer? You know, what what's the consensus right now? I think that's the hard thing is mm-hmm. that we look for consensus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and you know, I always say that this isn't about seeking consensus and finding it it's about building it yeah and what i found that was probably the most the two things that i think were the key to this really was one that people do connect with that idea of this is these are family issues and our families are similar even if they're very different right because we have similar concerns we are concerned about our health care we're concerned about social security and medicare we're concerned about where our kids going to go to school and is it a, a good education and their safety, right? right? Those things bring us together as a community. And so we were able to, you know, it's definitely, it's a nuanced approach Mm -hmm. to, I think, what traditional politics is, which is I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican and these are our talking points. Right. And what I was able to 
learn from people because people offered this to us right was that if you just listen you're going to find that common ground yeah and that really became the cornerstone of our campaign um i think the other thing is that the average voter doesn't understand campaign finance rules and you know all the nuances to that but they understand corruption yeah and i think that that is the driving force right now is money in politics Mm -hmm. and when we were at the doors particularly with independent voters you know they're just like yep that's the problem. So I don't want to deal with it. Right. You know, why are they they're, not voting? They're just disengaged. They're disengaged. Right. Why are they not voting? Because of that. And so it's a big issue for me to tackle. And I think being, I hate this word because then it's, people say this, but it's a big issue for me being an outsider into politics. Yeah. I don't, I don't love that label. I don't yeah, believe yeah. in labels, but coming from out, you know, a different, right. You yeah. know, going from a private to public sector yeah. and, and saying, look, I'm not here to, to say that I'm an expert in politics per se, but I do believe in our democracy and I can give you a different perspective of why I think it's not working. Right. And money as a whole is a big issue. I could obviously get into the weeds, but to me that I think that's resonating with people and that's really important. I mean, we're seeing a huge, we've seen it for a while now. I mean, it's almost like exhausting to even mention that there's such a huge divide between the right and the left, you know, in, so many different ways in the mainstream conversation. Um, you know, I was listening to an interesting Freakonomics podcast. I, I don't know if you listen to them every a little once bit, in a while, but, but yeah. they had a segment on duopolies. Mm. And in that segment, they talk about how money in politics and they look at Republicans versus Democrats as a duopoly. Mm. And when you look at it that way, it makes a lot more sense that they're very good as groups Mm -hmm. in sustaining themselves in this political economy. And what they were kind of getting at was interesting, and I'd like your take on it, was they were saying that, you know, money in politics is one thing, but another thing is the way we end up voting and having, you know, the incentives are misaligned Mm -hmm. in terms of having a primary vote first Mm -hmm. between you know democrats have their own primary republicans have their own so it incentivizes a very extreme viewpoint Mm -hmm. right out the gates Mm -hmm. but if there were bipartisan primaries then you would have to appeal to a much broader audience and that could tone down the the extremes on both sides like what are your thoughts around that that's really interesting um and i think that there's a lot of validity to that because I just was saying this actually at our meeting right before we started this podcast where what happens from my experience last time is you, I really ran a campaign that I was, yeah, I was proud of both my primary and general, but that it was really true to what I, the message I wanted to give was in the primary. I was able to do that. I was able to talk about the tech issues. Right. I was able to talk about this idea of the work-life balance. And right. it was, I think, refreshing to people. It was different. Yeah. And it was what I believe. You know, right. We were very authentic about it. And then suddenly, without your even, you know, it was we still were trying to push that, but it was hard. You suddenly win. And now you're just the Democratic candidate. Right. And it didn't, it almost felt like it didn't matter all the things I wanted to say because I was just these Democratic platform talking points even though Mm. we still tried to do that it really felt like it got lost and part of that's because we didn't have a lot of time but i think you just become that for the average voter yeah and so yeah to their point i mean breaking through that is it's pretty tough right and then what we're trying to accomplish is to rise above this idea that we're outnumbered in registrations and, and pull this off we have to break through that and i think money is the big 
it is it is i love the duopoly idea because it's true because right. this is on both sides no one likes it when we say that right yeah. about yeah. Sean Marty. right but it, it is it's a it's a business model yeah um but so that's what i've tried to look at it from a business perspective and say okay but you see businesses startups right don't have the money can't right. hire the big leagues right. can't bring in the marketing how do they do it they community build so to me, that's what, the, and that's what a democracy should be. It's about the community. It's about the voters. So I've always tried to pivot that way. And that's a principle of mine is to model and run the campaign that I believe is best for democracy. Even if the outside or the insiders are telling me you can't because you need all this money and you have to do this and you won't win. But I could play the game to win. Yeah. But I don't believe that proves anything. Right. And I'm, I'm here to prove that right. both to be in office to solve some problems, but also to prove that you can do this and we can all then start to see that and model it and, and actually make it real. So like, I think you're playing more of the, I think the merit of what I'm saying should outshine the, you know, the gesturing of it, you know, instead of just manipulating it to the point where I win mm-hmm. and, and I'm doing mm-hmm. air quotes right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, I see. That. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> instead of just saying I did it, I won mm-hmm. the merit of what you're saying, the things, the ideas that you're trying to push forward, they should hold on their own Yes, is what you're trying to do. And yes. I think that's really important because that's, that's, it's a harder approach, I think with all of these mechanics going against you. But I feel like, I mean, in one way, I feel like the average voter, that would be the best way to engage them mm-hmm. naturally, like for them to actually feel compelled to, okay, fine. I think it's doable. Right. You know, I think that's very interesting. So like going through your first campaign, um, I'm sure it was a whirlwind because it was your first time doing it and coming from, have you seen a difference in what we would call like the culprit culture and the political culture when you're interacting with different, you know, figureheads in this arena? Like, have you seen like any nuances that are kind of funny or are they all, Hmm. is it kind of the same? Yeah, I mean, I think it's funny to use the word politics, but the yeah. inner politics, like we all say yeah, in corporate right. culture, right? right. I, that's there in yeah. both cases. I think that the difference, if there is a difference, I think coming from the corporate world and being in positions where I was, you know, had large teams and had to really be that mediator a lot of times mm. and to get things done, right. is that I feel like in corporate culture, and obviously, obviously it's, ugh, excuse me, obviously it's in companies that succeed, right. <laughs> is you have differences. You recognize the differences. People don't always agree on how to get something done, but you come together as a team and you get it done, right? And you have usually good leadership that that helps with that right. um, because you have to, yeah. right? And when you're in politics, even within not necessarily legislating, but trying to just run within your own party structure, I don't think that that mentality has carried over enough. Interesting. And I think that's part of why we're here in this country is that we've lost the idea that... It, it's okay to have differences of opinion. Yeah. It's okay to have different takes and perspectives, but things will not move forward unless you actually come together. And to find leadership that does that is something that I, I found very, um, that was very eye opening to mm-hmm. me going into the political world. Um, if you had to find a, a difference between the two worlds, that was definitely something where I think we're, we're lacking yeah. that yeah. mentality. And I, and I think that's going to, that's interesting you say that because I feel like, it's such a huge, like when you say in the party, I mean, we're talking in so many different levels. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you're talking mm-hmm. on the state level, but I'm sure it kind of carries into the federal level mm-hmm. and the bigger, you know, so like it's a huge culture to shift mm-hmm. into this type of conversation. You know, like going through your, um, 
like going through your first campaign, like what was your biggest takeaway? Like what went wrong? What went right? That's a good question because I think that I feel very strongly about what we did. Mm -hmm. Um, I think really time was always something that I felt we didn't have enough of. So for me, it was more building upon these notions that I brought to the table, these operational notions. Right. Um, And so I don't think anything in particular went wrong, but what we weren't able to successfully do is again, kind of taking it back to how do you treat your customers? Yeah. You look at them, you look at what their inputs are so that you can figure out how to best target them. Right. Right. Is when you don't have enough time to do that in particularly in the general election, because it's so short here in Arizona, you can't really have your different constituency groups right. is, is kind of how we're looking at it this time and understand their point pain points. Because what I think the mistake we do as a whole in, in campaigns, and this is changing is we look at everybody as a voter. Right. Yeah. And we don't really break. I mean, we're starting to break it down. You see, you know, African-American voters did this here and this, but right. it's not to in an organic way that we're really having outreach with these constituency groups and really understanding their pain points. And so, what I've took from the last time is if I had more time to do that mm-hmm. in a really genuine way because I care mm-hmm. and get to more groups than I did last time. You know, we yeah. did do a lot of that, but there's there's so many different ways to, to look at who a voter is and to understand who they are. Um, you're a working mom who's also this and maybe or it's maybe it's your, you know, being with your church or whatever it is, right. is people connect in different ways. Right. And I really want to get into that back to that community building where you're connecting in those unique ways and just having more time, I think would have made a big difference in that. Um, I think also not being afraid. If I had to say one mistake that as a team we acknowledged was some of the idea of being afraid of maybe traditionally very conservative voters that would never vote Mm -hmm. for Anita, right? Um, And not really trying to target them as heavily and, and trying to think that, that we needed to, you know, there's always the argument in politics of do you, can you get, can you really persuade somebody Mm -hmm. depending on where they are? Right. Um, or do you just need to engage more turnout on your side and what is that mix and what is that balance? And there's no clear answer, but we're looking at it this time saying that that balance is a little different than last time. And and I think I believe in being fearless. Mm -hmm. And so there's nothing, you know, if I'm going to be the underdog, I'm the underdog. It's fine. Right. You, what do you have to lose, right? right? right. And, and you and I want to embrace that more um, because I think that that actually makes you sharper in your message. Well, one question I had around that is, you know, where do you, this drive, this inspiration that you get, um, you know, on the last campaign, you a little bit talked about your family background. Um, you know, where does this entrepreneurial spirit come from? Do you, have you ever been able to kind of source that? You know, my dad worked for, you know, employers most of his career, but always wanted to start his own business. And Uh towards the end of his career, um, he did run his own consulting firm. And so I, I've always guessed that it's come from there because it was one of those things, you know, he came to this country as an immigrant with with nothing really. He was very lucky to get a scholarship to come to USC um, to do his master's. And I think his, cultural training and his family kind of background was like you work hard you got to get you got to provide for your family you got to do all these things and so he stayed in very traditional paths right. to make sure all that was there right and then he finally was able to start his own business but i think he always had that in him wanted mm. to and he raised us to really embrace the idea of the american dream which is that if you work hard you can achieve and so my brother and i both became these people that took have taken 
different risks in our career have done things differently. And I think it's to attribute to that because that was what he taught us that you could do here. Right. And so, you know, full circle, it kind of led me, you know, I've been an entrepreneur, I've taken risks, I've done different things. And I think then, you know, again, seeing where we are economically as a country and how maybe as a woman, I can't have it all. Right, right. <laughs> That's a frustrating place to be. And then you look at policy and it kind of came full circle for me. So, I mean, running in your first campaign and then again now, can you kind of give us a glimpse of how this has affected just your family life? You know, like it's a huge, I mean, being in places, talking with people, mm -hmm. talking with your potential voters and everything, it can be cumbersome, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, how, how did it affect the first time running through and what do you think you'd change anything coming going into this process now or is it kind of what you have to deal with being in this type of field i th i think that i'm going to go to your last i wasn't going to start there but your last point about is it just part of being in this type of field you know before i decided to run last time i met with a lot of people in politics consultants uh, just people that had advice and um i remember distinctly one person saying well you know, you're, you're not going to be able to tuck your kids in at night, most nights. And I left that meeting and it was very, a very determined thing for me. I was like, well, I'll prove you wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I will tuck my kids in at night, you know, and I have, you know, we didn't say this, but I have two little boys. And so it was important to me to find that balance. And so I made a concerted effort to make sure that uh, we balanced it enough that I was around. I mean, I wasn't there every night, of course, right? right? But that it wasn't consistent nights away from the kids. It wasn't, you know, and people look at that one of two ways. One perspective on that is, well, then you're not cut out for the job. Right. That's the classic thing you would think. Right. Right. Yeah. right. And then, but to me and my counter to that is that if we want to change and we all are going to complain about what DC looks like, Right. And we want to change that. We want representation to be truly of the people. We have to start looking at that different too, because I believe someone that's connected to their family and has those values in place and, it, and they're strong is going to be much more successful representing us and legislating for us than someone that's so far removed and doesn't have that connection back because they just are living in their office and not really seeing their children, right? right. I mean, whatever that is, grandchildren, children. Right. And so for me, it was to counter that always. Right. And... It was, it was hard. Let's never yeah. <laughs> underestimate how hard it was. But, you know, I think of all people that surprised me the most when get asked the question, well, who's going to take care of her kids is my mom. Right. Because you would think someone that's raised traditionally in the Indian culture would have said, yeah, you know, you should take care of your kids first. Right. But her answer shocked me to people because it was, well, that's what working moms have to do now. You know, this isn't any different than what a, another working mom would do. The schedule's a little bit harder, but it's also just balancing and figuring it out. So my husband luckily um, is in his own business. Mm -hmm. So I, when I'm doing you know things at night, he right. can watch the kids, he has flexibility during the day. Like we just kind of switched our times. And so I'd spend more time with them in the mornings, getting them to school or daycare or whatever, the, you know, they've grown up a little in the last two yeah. years. <laughs> um, but we really were able to make it work and it's a, it's a partnership and it's a team. and. As hard as it was on the family, the one thing that got us back into it this time and the one thing we reflected on was the community that we built. Mm -hmm. I and mean, we have such amazing people around us now. Mm. And we all felt this hope that it was, that it's such an incredible feeling. It's, it's so hard to put into words. Right. But the idea that 
in a district that no one ever tried to even make change before, that this could happen. I mean, that carried people and that hope brought people together. So many new friendships were formed, you know, between our volunteers, amongst themselves. Right. I know people hang out now, yeah. you know, even with us. And so we're very grateful for that experience. We wouldn't have had it otherwise. I think one thing that struck me about what you were doing uh, in the last campaign, and this is more of a personal take on it. You know, there's one thing to say, okay, well, there's a group of people that aren't going to vote for me. Mm-hmm. That's just a fact. Mm-hmm. So if we spend time there, it's not going to help us. But I think there's a difference between making that decision not to engage with that type of audience mm-hmm. and the difference between someone saying, okay, I'm still not voting for you, but I respect you. And I think that underlying value is what starts the change Mm -hmm. that people want to see. It's how I ran last time. It's really just about, I want to hear about you. How are your kids? Like getting to really understand people in this community. I mean, I grew up here. I already have a very, like I would say large network. Um, But it's amazing to know really people's stories. You know, I think stories are so effective and creative change mm-hmm. and everybody has a story, right? And if you can dig into that story, you can also get to know their world and, and their people. And that's kind of how you, that's community building to me. Um, so, you know, I think to, I would, I'm really trying to keep with both, but in, in a bigger fashion this yeah. time, yeah. you know, I think we know what worked and what didn't. Um, and we're excited to just like the calendar to change to 2020. Yeah, this point. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. Like with your pulse on what's going on, what do you think are the top things on people's minds right now in terms of things we need to fix or things we need to address? Healthcare and safety. So if you're not safe, mm. we're, you know, gun safety is a top issue. If our kids aren't safe, if our communities aren't safe, the rest of that doesn't matter, right? Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I saw that those photos of those right. bulletproof backpacks and stuff, yeah. and I'm just like, yeah. where are we getting to? Right. You and know? you're a parent with young kids, and yeah. you're like, that's... Imagine all of us in right. that force, how much that, that force is to be able to make that change because we don't want our kids growing up like that. I don't right. want to send my kids to school with this is the new norm. Right. It cannot be our new normal. Right. Um, so I think that that's number one. And then healthcare for the same reason. If you don't have your health, like my dad said, you don't have anything. Right. And we continue to, instead of making any progress on improving healthcare for, for even one family, yeah. right? Because there's so much nuance and complexity yeah. to healthcare. Instead of doing that, we're just fighting to take it away. To me, that's something that I, I will not stop fighting. And I've made that very clear that that and I'm not going to ever hedge on what I believe or how my policy is going to be just to win an election, because right. that's not going to get us anywhere in healthcare. So speaking of healthcare, care um, in the last campaign, uh, your family had a very personal scare um, mm-hmm. towards the end of it. Yes. Um, so, you know, your husband and I'll let you talk about the condition and stuff and what you ended up discovering, but uh, can you talk around how that affected not only your campaign, but like your family and just your medium article, which I'll link in the podcast. I think people should read is very telling of the types of, at least for me, the types of symptoms that we're all dealing with Mm -hmm. when it comes to why you're fighting for healthcare, what that means. Like, I feel like you saw the teeth of that argument firsthand. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk a little bit around what happened? Yeah. So yeah, it was right kind of a couple of weeks after we won the primary right. and you're in this short cycle here in Arizona to, to pull off a general and he started to have flu like symptoms and 
you know, went on for a little bit, got a little bit better. And so we finally, it just got to the point where it was not normal. You know, you could tell something was wrong and I took him in and nobody expected this. It was possibly meningitis ended up being, um, he had infection in his brain. So he had abscesses, five abscesses, which is very abnormal. Um, this went on for six weeks of the general election. He was released about a week after the election and he had several brain surgeries at the time. The hardest part about it, and everybody struggles with this when they deal with the medical system, right, is that you need to be an advocate. So that's already there, right? You're not thinking. When you have a catastrophic health event like this, this is somebody that was completely healthy for no rhyme or reason, and they still don't know why. He's considered a case study, why this happened, and to such an extreme. Um, you suddenly are thrown in this situation that you can't be thinking about dollars and cents. Right. You're thinking about what's the best care for him, what the doctors are telling you, why are they moving him to this hospital versus this, what's happening? You know, I mean, there was so much going on. And layer that in with what, obviously, I was running a campaign, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and I have two little kids. And so it was a challenging time, to say the least. But people always said, well, I don't, just don't know how you do it. I would just stop. And, and you know, he would have moments of extreme clarity for what he was going through in times where we really couldn't communicate. And he just was like, we have to see this through. And that's kind of what drove me was that he mm. understood that I was there for him as much as I could, but I also needed to do this because this is the journey that we had set ourselves out. There was purpose behind it. Wow. And it was really, I don't remember people ask me often a lot, you know, how did you get through this or what was that like? And honestly, a lot of it is a blur. Mm. Um, my days were split between three and I made, I decided I got, <laughs> I got to the point I'm laughing cause it sounds silly, but it's so, it's so not campaign like, mm. um, I got to the point and my team understood this, my scheduler and everybody that kind of handled events was schedule anything you want. I will tell you the day of if what I can do that day where I will be. And you know, I did something campaign every day. I was always committed to the campaign. Um, and they got used to that. So we all had to pivot. We all had to understand that we didn't have a lot of information. I didn't have a lot of information. This, his case was very changing day to day. Um, and so at the end of it all, you know, we were people that had health insurance paid, you know, 16,000 or something like that in premiums over the year paid our share of what American families always go through is we've paid now you cover me. Right. Right. Simple logic, um, didn't happen. You know, our, our expected bills were about $40,000. Now that's, you know, after you meet your deductibles, all that stuff that you expect to pay. Right. And then we had a bill come in for about $142,000. Reading that when you, when you shared that article, it was just jaw dropping. Yeah. Uh, thought, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. How did you feel being a part of the system and seeing it firsthand and getting that bill? It's, it's hard to explain. You know, it was shocking. Um, you go into panic mode. Um, we've already been through an appeal process. I think the day that I got the first appeal saying, and they said, no, uh, there's some video of my reaction. Basically we decided I'm like, I don't, you know, we're, we're tracking this now because I think it's all too common American story. Um, Unfortunately. Yeah. And my first thought was, okay, let's sell the house. I mean, we've been through, you know, we're not going to go bankrupt. I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen. We need to, you know, and we're still dealing with it. I'm luckily to be in the position where I can get advice from, you know, people that have really been in this a little bit more. And, but most American families, they don't know where to turn, Yeah, you know? Um, But seeing it only, it really put our 
pain of everything that we've been through to purpose. It really was one of those moments where we were still deciding, you know, I was waiting for him to have all his health milestones before I decided to run again. That was critical. We got there and then it was, oh, no, 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 no. This is too common. You know, we're feeling this pain. This is hurting our family. We got to figure it out. It takes a lot of, you know, just hours of my time every week to get through everything, um, to deal with these claims. But I know this is happening to so many families. I just, I can't, I can't walk away from that fight. The majority of American families that go bankrupt have health insurance. Yeah. That's, this is not because we want handouts, which a lot of people want to make that the talking point. Right. Um, that's the part that's the most hurtful is that you, it's, putting your trust in a system, right? We see that in business. Now imagine you were running a startup right? and we all bought something, you know, you're a SaaS company and every, you're just making all this money off recurring subscriptions, right. but you didn't deliver anything. Right. Do you think you'd get away with that? Right. Right. I mean, the, this is, we have allowed this, our government has allowed this. We built this insurance model. Right. Right. Through legislation. So we need to fix it now. It's yeah. our duty. It's our job. And, and I think that's the flip side of the coin and the positive part of it that we built it, we can change it. Yeah. It, it will take time and right. it will take of, work. Yeah, of course it's not that but it, simple. There, but it has to be the will, yeah. right? The will to get it done. You're right. And I think that's, I, I mean, I think that's so true for a lot of people. I think people can resonate with that. You, you can't be shopping for in network hospitals when you're having a heart attack, you know, like what does that even sound right. like? Right. You know, like saying that out loud just sounds it's, silly, yeah. you know, yeah. um, the way we've structured coverage and everything else, it's not for preventative care. It's not mm-hmm. for, you know, maximizing your, your health. Mm-hmm. It's for something else. It's for profits. Or, or it's a collaboration of, you know, some people want it over here. Some people want it over there. And I don't know. I feel like how, how are you going to, where do you, th- where do you think we should start this conversation when it comes to healthcare? You know, I think that there's some easy places to start, but they're not enough. And I mm. say that to, to start our conversation on it yeah. because politically, when you get into this sphere, and that's what always is probably the, the biggest shift I've had to have between mm. the two worlds is that we, we want to convince voters that I'm just going to do this and it's going to fix it. And nothing, no issue, and especially healthcare is that simple, <laughs> right. right? I mean, everything has gray area. Everything is complicated. And with healthcare, people want to talk about Um, more people having access Mm. and affordability. And so one place to start is public option, right? Let people buy into Medicare. Mm -hmm. To me, that's a step. It's Mm. not a solution. Right. It's a bandaid. It's a bandaid. And it's a, and it's a little bit of also a proof of concept, right? Cause you're letting people come in, you're letting that system widen, you're letting, you know, people to experience that and you're seeing the glitches that can happen right on on the other end. Um, But if you don't continue to move from there and get more people covered, then you're never going to have full leverage, which is the other issue, which is affordability. Because mm. letting people buy into something is great. And, you know, there's there's some theory that if you have more people buy into that, then it's a risk pool sharing. And, yeah. you know, then obviously it's more, the premiums go down for the, the rest of the exchange. There's no proof to that. And right. I think a couple states that have done it have had very low drops in those. Right. Um, and so I'm saying all that to really get to the point where if we don't get to truly a universal system and some type of Medicare for all system, and I yeah. say tight because there's a lot of proposals out there, yeah. um, we're not going to solve the problems. Right. You know, when, when I have people 
debate me or talk to me about, okay, well, I have a strong public option plan and that's what it's going to be. My first thing is, okay, how would that have helped my family? Right. Not one way. Right. So to, to say that I, that this is something that's going to be fixed like that with one piece Right. is not okay. But to say it's a first step is okay. So yeah. I would start there. I'd start to bring together our current single payer models. We mm-hmm. have the VA. Mm-hmm. Um, we have children's insurance program chip. We have several models like this, Medicare, Medicaid, bring those together, learn from those, make more efficiencies, give, make Medicare a better program. I mean, right. Medicare is not perfect. We all know that right. it doesn't cover everything. We need to, to expand that. So there's a lot of steps I would take that I think I don't think I wish mm-hmm. politically we could be doing those right now. Right. You know, and you the, can't even that, have that conversation. I, you can't right even now. have that conversation because right now families are struggling with mm-hmm. all these things. This would help so many people. Um, but right. it's the situation we're in and that's, that's the frustrating part. So healthcare for me is, is, uh, politically and, and on the campaign, one of those issues that I think people, Last cycle, it was a little bit of a struggle because I'm not willing to to do an all or nothing in, in any scenario. Right. It's just not what I believe. Right. And, and I say that because if we don't, I've, I'm watching from the outside again, that outsider yeah, thing. Yeah. Um, I'm labeling myself. It's great. It's fine. Um, <laughs> Label yourself because they're going to try anyway. <laughs> they're going to do so, it anyways. Yeah. The outsider to politics. Um, but as you watch that, you know, the political, I don't know, give it, call it the circus, right? Whatever. Right. That you know the all or nothing's not going to happen. I mean, we are so far from that as a country politically to get something like that to happen. Yeah. You know, and people want you to say, well, you just have to go in with that vision. I agree with the vision. Yeah. But if that can't happen, if we don't have the will as a country to get it done, right. I'm going to make all these other steps. I'm going to fix as much as I possibly can. Right. I'm not going to sit back because families are suffering. And as legislators, that is what we should focus on. We should not be worried about, I need this big political win. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't not saying that anyone ever has done that, but I think we get caught in that. We mm-hmm. get caught in this notion of if I don't have the big thing, I can't have anything. Right. You know, and not to, again, bring it back to tech. But I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, everything to me, that's how I, my brain works. But, you know, you build a product, you build a, what I think is a prototype. I think the ACA is a prototype or right. it's past that now. It's a, it's a working, yeah. working thing. But you build upon it. Right. You never just stop. You don't let their, you know, bugs happen. You fix them. You come up with new feature sets. You make it better. Mm-hmm. You listen. Right. You listen to the people that are using it. Right. And we don't do that. Mm-hmm. And I've gone on a tangent for you now. Sorry, no, no, but no, I no, get no, that's really fine. passionate. No, no, about that's this fine. Stuff. But like, I mean, when you have these conversations with opposing views in the elected arena, right? Mm-hmm. And this might be a loaded question and you may want not to answer this, but, um, I'll just do you, cut. Yeah. <laughs> you're just going to give me the air <laughs> yeah, cut. Yeah. The air cut. Yeah. Um, do you think it's ignorance of how nuanced healthcare is or do you think it's intellectual dishonesty or do you think it just depends on who you talk to? I think it depends on who you talk to. Okay. I think some people, and I don't know, think it's ignorance necessarily yeah, i think I mean, people that's a, know that, that's a harsh word in, right. in this in this um dialogue right, right now but what i mean is they just don't know right right and that's what i'm saying you people know. know their experience right and that's why the story part of this is so mm-hmm. important because you know your experience i know my experience and i can talk to you 
for an hour about continuity of care law that doesn't affect half the families that are going through a financial system yeah. issue with healthcare, right? And they don't know that. Right. I know it because it's my experience. Yeah. And so what's important is to draw that out and to then see how it fits into to the whole of, okay, well, we need we can fix that with this, or maybe we can't. Maybe this legislation doesn't do that, so thank you for bringing it in. Right. Um, and so I try not to debate the at you know kind of the constituent voter level this is yeah. not me telling them what's right but me explaining why yeah i think this would help their family and i think that's important because in politics it at least from my perspective mm-hmm. not being in it we need more people that are and i've referred to them more as liaisons mm-hmm. between different walks of life like there's so many people that we need people that understand healthcare and how it works and how it doesn't work mm-hmm. and the nuances of it enough to communicate that to more people in a very simple way mm-hmm. for them to understand that, look, this guy does, or this the woman knows what she's talking about. I may not know everything she's saying, but I get it. She's in it, mm-hmm. you know, and that's enough for me to trust whatever she does, you know, right. in, in the room, you know, right. To, <laughs> right. to legislate. Right. right. Um, what, what is your, are you starting to see this movement? Like, I mean, I, I kind of, you come across more as a liaison to mm-hmm. me, like someone who come, you know, you're bringing, there's so much nuance, you know that, but you don't not answer a question because mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. You try to answer the best you can, but you also, and you're not even hedging, you're just disclaiming like, look, there's a lot more to this, but here's a simple, at least a way to answer this question. Right. There was a joke within my team last cycle that, well, you're the only one that ever really answers the question. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Um, and it just, it, we get so caught up in the sound bites and yeah. the way to be like this. Again, it's that, that false narrative of it's this. This yep. is your answer and I'm going to go and do this. And A, let's be honest, we're each one legislator in the big body that none of us can do anything on our own. Right. A <laughs> yeah. and, and then B, you know, everything has that gray area and complexity. So, you know, I'm hopeful that we are changing that. I think that there's been a move toward people again to our earlier conversation about being a real person. Yeah. Um, and I appreciate the label of liaison. So thank you. Oh yeah. No, um, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> that's probably one I mean, of the better I, ones I've ever gotten. Yeah. Cause I'm, I'm the no labels person, but, right. but in that case, you know, I'd, I'd rather be what I've always said is my job. It, you know, if I'm so lucky to be voted in it is to be there to hear the stories of the district is to hear the concerns is to hear their ideas for solutions. People have brilliant ideas yeah. um, and to bring those with me back to the to vote on the house or the uh, the floor of the house excuse me and you know my job is not to again seek consensus for what i think is right you know i definitely have my beliefs but i am even as a candidate i'm always willing to hear and say you know what you have a point there and let's like see how we can refine this because there are so many experiences with these systems you know we're talking about large government systems that mm-hmm. affect so many people right I mean, I was knocking on doors last cycle and we were talking about social security and this woman had her, her very particularly nuanced situation being a widow and how social security didn't work for her and a very nuanced conversation mm-hmm. I won't go into, but it was so different, right? That's something that you hear every day about our talking points about yeah. social security. And so I'm hopeful that, that more candidates go that route. I'm also hopeful that more candidates model that in their campaigns because yeah. to me, like we talked about money before, 
that's the most important thing because right. I don't think we'll change a lot of our system if we don't actually vote those people in. And what I always tell voters is if you believe that's the problem, then that's the thing you need to most look for. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. If this episode made you think and you wish to reach out with a comment or a question, record your voice and send us the file at socialfabricpodcast at gmail.com or record yourself on my website. I'll provide the links in the show notes below. Be sure to follow this podcast on Facebook and Twitter and also join the exclusive Social Fabric Facebook group and engage with other listeners from around the world. Until the next one, be well.